We didn't really plan it this way, but it seems to me like Amy's gotten all the wonderful feel-good aphorisms this summer. She's gotten to talk to you about how she could have done the social justice thing, but you know, she's going to talk to you as a pastor, and I get to talk to you about money. So be it. Money can't buy happiness. Everybody knows that. It's a truth the Bible seems to affirm. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. They just rot. Store up treasures in heaven. He said, you cannot serve God and money, so seek first the kingdom of God. He told the parable of that rich man who kept getting richer with his farm, and then in a move of great arrogance, he tore down all of his barns. He was going to build bigger ones. And he died that night, losing it all. Jesus asked, so what does it profit someone to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? Jesus doesn't seem to care about the Dow Jones Industrial Average if we have lost our morality. And Jesus said it's impossible, impossible for rich people to get into heaven. Now, we ought not mince words about this. Despite the clever ways preachers have interpreted around the discomfort Jesus offers in that parable about the camel and the eye of the needle, the meaning is self-evident. It is easier for a literal camel to go through the literal eye of a literal needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. Wow, that's hard. Those are hard words. Money can't buy happiness, much less your way into heaven. The Bible does not have much good to say about money. Reading most of the Bible, we can learn that money can't buy happiness. It can buy stuff, but stuff doesn't last. It can buy popularity for the moment, but, money is, but when the money is gone, so are the friends. It can buy power, but the Bible wants us invested in love. Money can't buy happiness. Everyone knows that. But my maternal grandmother, whose laughter was as big as she was, knew there was a slightly deeper truth. She kept a refrigerator magnet that said it well. Money can't buy happiness, but it can make misery a lot more enjoyable. And she'd just laugh and laugh and laugh. And once again, today, the old sage of Ecclesiastes is inviting us to think more deeply on this personal and important and central topic, as Dan has reminded us, central topic. The unconventional wisdom of the old preacher surprises us in a bit of biblical contradiction. Feasts are made for laughter as Amy said, where's all the seriousness of the spiritual life? And wine gladdens the heart. Let me promise you, Russ Dean never heard that sitting in the pews of First Baptist Church in Clinton, South Carolina, when his daddy was standing right here. Wine gladdens the heart? Not so much, folks. Money meets every need. Money meets every need. I thought only God met every need. It seems to have worked for Amy all summer. 
So now that we're nearing the end of the series, let me try it out for myself. You know, I could not decide which way to go with this sermon. It could be a stewardship sermon on the use of our resources. It could be an exercise just in biblical exegesis, the role that money plays in Scripture. It could be bent toward pastoral care, a lesson in generosity. I could talk about all those things, but I don't think I'll go there today. I think this sermon is about social justice, justice for a society. Now, of course, social justice always includes stewardship and exegesis and pastoral care, but at least one truth we can glean from this unconventional wisdom is straightforward. Money, in fact, can meet every need. Or in other words, there's hardly anything that can provide a basic level of happiness as much as a basic level of income. Money meets every need for everyone in a society. Thinking about this text, I had a really good time thinking about this text And it made me miss a couple of my old friends. It made me miss my old friend, a supporter and an antagonist, a debate partner who bested me in virtually every conversation we had, but he tolerated me nonetheless. I miss Dr. Ken Godwin. Ken was an interesting soul. While his academic studies had made him uh, intellectually agnostic about many spiritual affirmations, Ken was as devoted to church, to this church, as anyone. Ken believed in the way of Jesus, and he knew the importance of church as community, having been raised by this church and a single mother who was struggling to raise three children in the 1950s. Ken was a social scientist by training, a libertarian by conviction, and he was a deacon by practice. His views that were consistent, at least in Ken's own mind, seemed to me to swing from pole to pole, from left to right and across the spectrum. In terms of money, Ken Godwin sometimes sounded like a conservative and other times not so much. Ken believed nothing was more important to the well-being of a family than a basic income. He would tell you, and then he would quote five studies to back it up, that up to $75,000 in household income, nothing changes a family's life, nothing. Not even the higher education that he loved, not religion, not even God. Nothing, Ken would say, could change a child's future more than money. Now, beyond that level of income, he would insist that the value of money has diminishing returns. Again, citing the studies to defend his position, Ken would say that more money is not an incentive for people who already have security. If you want to make better employees, don't promise them more money. That's not the incentive they need. And he would say more money for rich people might even be a bad thing. So Ken sounded like a conservative when he talked about the importance of a growing economy. He sounded less like one when he insisted that the more you have, the more you ought to pay. A progressive taxation is the only way to run a thriving nation. 
Now, while today's conservatives would not have appreciated Ken's take on taxing the rich, he actually sounded a good bit like Jesus, who once noted, to whom much has been given, much more will be required. Being an academic, Ken would love to have discussed Fred Clark's quotation that is printed in your bulletin today, those terms from mathematics and logic, necessity and sufficiency, in agreement with the blogger from the Pathios website, Ken often insisted that money is necessary for happiness. Without being able to provide for oneself and one's family, it's almost impossible to find happiness. But money is never sufficient for happiness. Ken knew that too. Plenty of rich folks are not happy at all. Some money can make you happy, it's necessary. But money is never a guarantee of happiness. It's not sufficient. Yeah, I miss Ken Godwin, who had a lot in common with the cynicism and the uncommon wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And I miss another old friend, another sparring partner who was even more loyal to church and for more years than Ken Godwin, just as liberal in his theology and even more conservative in his politics. I miss my friend Chet Helt. There was never, there's never been a church member with whom I could disagree more, but whose disagreements never, ever, ever, ever made me worry that our relationship would be injured, that he would threaten to walk away or withhold his support or his participation. Chet had been taught that this is the way we do church. We talk. Even when we disagree, we talk. And then we go on loving one another. I miss that. It's a rare gift that some in Chet's generation in this church gain from our particular expression of local church. In this conversation today, I can guarantee you that Chet Helt would have sent me an email cautioning me about all those liberals who want to practice social engineering. You know, taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. We can't do that social engineering. I've heard this from Chet many times. I can hear him now. But I would remind Chet, as I did on multiple occasions before he died, that we're already practicing social engineering. We always have. Every government policy, any structure of taxation, all incentives and disincentives engineer our society in one direction or another. There is no decision about if social engineering or not, just what kind of engineering. Will it be top-down or middle-out or bottom-up? And as a Christian, I would remind Chet that our convictions and commitments are first and foremost in trying to understand a biblical theology and in following the way of Jesus, even in our politics. Over the last 40 years, across all administrations, the political left and the political right, we have followed a strategy of social engineering that has benefited the wealthy far more than it has benefited the poor. Now, don't take Russ's word from it. The data are conclusive. Just to give you one example, since 2009, the pay for corporate CEOs has increased on average by more than 52%, but those at the bottom are still struggling for a living wage. 
our decisions and strategies, our social engineering continues to widen the gap between the rich and the poor. And I need to take this personal moment to say that if you're home and getting ready to turn off your computer, or you're about to walk out of the sanctuary because you think this is partisan pandering, you need to listen to your pastor more carefully, please. I will remind you, as I have on many occasions, that I believe in partisan dialogue, that we need all the voices at the table, from conservative to liberal and across the span. You can be a blue Christian, a red Christian, a libertarian Christian, an independent Christian, but it is my job as one of your pastors to invite you to put your faith before your party, a biblical theology before any other loyalty. So do your politics any way you see fit. But for people of biblical faith, the last and the least, the lost, must be first, even in the decisions we make for policies and procedures and politics. Now, simply put, I do not find justification in biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation to support a top-down model of religion or politics or economics. I think it's not there. The biblical story, almost from the very beginning, asks us to think carefully about this. Just after the creation narrative in Genesis, we read the story where Cain kills his brother Abel out of a fit of jealousy. And when God comes looking for Abel, Cain asks the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? That defensive question is basically the topic of our scripture from there to the very end. And the answer is unequivocal. By all means, yes. Yes, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. Years ago in a lecture, I was taught that the Bible is mostly about economics. And as I have read, as I have read and studied and preached for three decades since that lecture, I have been persuaded that this odd affirmation is actually correct. In many ways that people do not recognize, Scripture is about being our brothers and sisters keepers in personal and political practice. And from beginning to end, God displays an unceasing devotion to and a priority for the poor. It is one of Jesus' most famous parables and one that is easy to spiritualize or dismiss, with, or dismiss with sentimental appeals to charity. On that day that God judges between the sheep and the goats, the dividing line will be what they did what we did and did not do for the poor, those who are left out, the down and out. When those on the left hand ask, when was it that we saw you naked and we did not clothe you, or hungry and we did not feed you, or in prison and we did not visit you, Jesus answers them, when you have not done it to the least of these, you have not done it to me. Now, that's a wonderful sentiment. That'll preach, you know, as they say. But if you want to take Jesus really seriously, you have to figure out how to actually implement the care of the least of these. And in doing so, what you will find is that you quickly move from preaching to politics, from ethics to economics, from ministry 
to money. How do we take care of the least of these? A pastor and author named Thomas Horrocks says, Charity cannot fix what policy has created. Policy will have to fix what charity cannot. And the unconventional wisdom of Ecclesiastes cuts right to the chase. Money meets every need. So here's the good news for you today. I hope you can hear this. Money actually can buy happiness. So use your money to buy all the happiness you can find. As John Wesley, the founder of Methodist Christianity, said so well, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can so that your money can buy a lot of happiness for you and also be an investment in the welfare and the happiness of all of God's people. It's about social justice. Money actually can buy happiness. May it be so. Amen.